Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, roundtable. Uh, this is a roundtable uh, organized by the Department of International Relations and uh, LSE uh, Ideas uh, Together. Uh, everybody agrees that the Russian-Western relationship uh, is in crisis. Indeed, it's been called a defining moment for European uh, and, and, in sense, Western security as well as Russia's. Uh, some even want to characterize the current phase in the new relationship as being a new Cold War. Uh, not, a, not a view I agree with, but that is how some are beginning to characterize it to give it a sense of the seriousness of the current uh, situation. There's great disagreement, however, uh, about something else, and that's as to how we got to where we are today. Who do you want to blame? Uh, do you want to blame NATO and NATO enlargement through the 90s, which challenged uh, Russian security? So one argument goes, why not blame Russia and Putin? That's a pretty popular one in the West. Uh, you can blame Ukrainian nationalists. You can even call them fascists, if you like, and that's done pretty regularly now in, in Kiev itself. Or you can blame, and I never thought this would happen, you can blame the EU. Um, blaming NATO is pretty, pretty par for the course, but blaming the EU for these kinds of things. You know. So what we have here tonight really is a round table uh, representing different perspectives and, and, and different positions uh, by four outstanding analysts of Russia, Ukraine, stroke, EU, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Tomila Lankina, Associate Professor of International Relations here at the LSE, uh, in, in the kind of middle there. Uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Sasser, now Professor at the University of Oxford, so Professorial Fellow has had immediate, immediate elevation. Uh, well done. I hope, it was, I hope there was a connection with coming here this evening to the LSE. It always helps people's career perspectives, but I'm sure you got it before that, Gwendolyn. Uh, and also, my, my good friend, colleague from the department, Karen Smith, who's Professor of International Relations and Director of European and Foreign Policy, and last but by no means least, uh, Professor Vlad Zubok, Professor of International History, LSE, and Head of the Russian International Affairs Program here in Ideas. It's a round table. We don't want everybody to speak for too long, so I've given them 12 minutes each max to state a position. Uh, they're all going to draw a lesson, or maybe two. Uh, there will be some overlap, that's inevitable, but Vlad is going to go first to talk about how we got where we are today. Uh, Tamila will then follow on the current situation in Russia and Ukraine, uh, post-elections in Ukraine, the recent ones that is. Gwen will then follow up uh, on the internal dynamics in Ukraine and a few thoughts too on Ukraine-EU uh, relations. And then finally Karen uh, will look at the EU position on Russia and Ukraine and everybody will have one lesson each. That'll be four lessons for the evening, which isn't bad value. Mm. So I wonder if you could give a round of applause to our speakers. And, um, and, and that's even before they speak. So, uh, Vlad, over to you. All right. You know, I... Um I don't actually accept this uh, uh, quotas of lessons because I have four here, um, <laughs> roughly. So, you know, I uh, hope it doesn't exhaust the list. Um, I think it's uh, a little bit presumptuous for any one of us, uh, and certainly myself, I would speak for myself, to be an, an expert in what is still unfolding. And it's, uh, it's the war with fresh wounds, with many people killed. The drama continues. So, um, you know, the best, uh, the best I can suggest to assume the tone of... Uh, uh, reflection uh, as a historian uh, can on something that we're still uh, seeing uh, unfolding. So for me, uh, maybe the first lesson to be learned is uh, blaming Russia and Putin is okay and uh, justifiably so, but we must not leave uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian prehistory, that is pre-2014, uh, out of our focus. Um, my um, way of conceptualize it is, of course, not new. Um, my friend, director of uh, Ukrainian uh, Institute at Harvard, Sergei Ploch, he uh, wrote several books about that and articles on how important was, is the concept of empire and the collapse of the empire, of course, in, in 1990, 1991. And traditionally, uh, this view of the collapse of the empire was viewed as uh, from one perspective. That is, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. It was the last empire, and uh, there were 
15 new states, and only one of these states remained as a potential empire that could be reborn, revived, and threaten everyone else. That is Russia, obviously. So that you have, uh, you have in the literature. It is my uh, attempt maybe to, uh, uh, to complicate in, uh, this, uh, this thesis to say that, indeed, we see in the Russian case uh, several trends. On one hand, indeed, a very strong tendency to, uh, to, um, to continue to think about Russia as an empire uh, and, uh, and uh, some policies that flow from it. But also, there is a trend towards somehow converting Russia into a nation state. And, you know, we have a tendency of Russian nationalism. Everybody says, aha, this is very dangerous. Yeah, people don't realize that there are two different trends. You either talk about empire, a federated state, you know, and, and, and certain, certain type of rule associated with that, or you talk about the, uh, the, the rise of Russian nationalism and in a reorganization of Russia on different principles. I would say the same can be said about some other Republics that emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Empire when this uh, uh, Russian-Georgian war uh, occurred uh, in 2008. I remember um, a discussion in Washington, and by the way, already back then people said that Crimea would be next. Uh, I remember that. But uh, there was a discussion in, in Washington at the Kennan Institute, and I uh, said something that uh, some people didn't like, that uh, Georgia was also a mini-empire, a mini-empire sort of trying to convert itself um, into a nation state. Ukraine is, is a case of a sort of a former uh, piece of an empire. It's like a mirror. It breaks into pieces and every piece is a small mirror. So I, I'm not claiming that Ukraine was also a mini empire, but some residual imperial elements in Ukraine, of course, were there were there. It's a multi-ethnic, it's multi-language, uh, you know, Hungarian-speaking parts, and, and of course, famous, the most famously, is Crimea. So the prehistory of these crises uh, must and should be assessed, and some of people, some of experts at this panel actually have done it uh, much better than I would do here, um, from the viewpoint of trying to arrange this new state as, as a nation state. But in what sense to arrange it as a nation state? Based on the ideas of civic nation, but then the, the, the question of language, the question of culture, uh, becomes not the crucial constituent principle for that. The, the case of Ukraine, however, is complicated because you have both. You have an attempt to create, of course, a democracy and civic state, but also you have an, an insecurity uh, about the question of language, about the question of ethnic diversity, about the question of Russians and Russianness. That, that is there. So something like that should be analyzed. In, 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 in literature, we read, for instance, mm, that uh, separatism in Crimea, and you know, I can quote from Arest Subtilny, it's the, you know, Crimea is the fulcrum of Russian imperialist sentiment. However, if we place Crimea in the context of an independent Ukrainian state, that's not how it can be imperial sentiment. It becomes magically transformed a Russian nationalist sentiment because it's within another context of not quite an empire but the country dominated of course by ethnic Ukrainians so that requires definitely reconsideration in the thinking um, third uh, second, uh, second question uh, there was a lot of discussion of course after the, uh, uh, the takeover of Crimea what, it, what is it all about? The first um, step of Putin and uh, uh, Russian nationalists and Russian imperialists uh, to move beyond it, and, and it's just a probe. It's just a probe of how the West, how Europe would react. And I would argue, um, although it's, of course, you know, I may be wrong, I would argue that, uh, Ukraine, uh, that the Crimean uh, takeover was a special case, because Crimea was very, very special. Um, the story of Crimean uh, conflict, that is conflict of Russia and Ukraine over Crimea, over Sevastopol, over the Black Sea, for those of you who don't know, started right away, immediately after the Ukrainian uh, vote of independence. Um, 
basically in January 1992, and I have no time to go to the, through this history, but all, you, uh, the Crimea became the first, maybe one of the first, but definitely one of the first uh, triggers to the struggle inside Russia between the Supreme Soviet and, and the Yeltsin government, the struggle that would later in 1993 almost put Russia on the brink of civil war. Similarly, the, you know, the, the issue of how, uh, how Crimea would be controlled arose immediately and uh, sort of overridden in Ukrainian political imagination the Belovezha agreements of December 1991. Again, Plohi writes it, uh, very, about it very well in his book, but I found ample, uh, ample justification in Russian archives how this story uh, was viewed as a sort of a surprise by, by the Russians themselves. Why Ukraine suddenly began to insist on the ownership, total ownership, for instance, of the Black Sea Fleet, Sevastopol. And then, of course, that created an enormous collision between the two images of the future, Ukrainian independent nationalist image of the future and Russian imperial but also nationalist vision of, of Crimea as you know the symbol, uh, the symbol of Russian uh, Russian glory and all and all that. So um, I would tend to think uh, the Crimean case as as a really exceptional case. It's hard for me and and Gwendolyn Sasser wrote a wonderful book about it. So we may argue about it. It's hard for me to imagine any other part of the former Soviet Empire, any other sort of uh, a piece uh, that would be so uh, important. For Russian, um, both imperial, imperial, and national nationalist imagination. Um, why then the Crimean issue that? was basically settled and you know everyone who traveled to Crimea saw the situation was absolutely calm there were maybe hidden tensions Crimean Tatars you know Russians Ukrainians but those were hidden tensions why it suddenly escalated it's very easy to come to conclusion that because of the little green man appeared and that blew up the, the whole situation but of course in my opinion you cannot take it out of the context of February 19 uh, 2014 you know sudden sudden break of continuity in, in Ukrainian constitutional political history and also again returning to the question of prehistory what happened what happened in economic sphere what happened in financial sphere we still don't know very well for instance uh, I met people in Crimea who assured that they uh, that Kiev took all their money out whatever they could you know added value tax whatever and, and with the same certain I talked to Ukrainians and they said, well, we, we gave them money. They, they are basically datirovane region. I mean, they, they take money from the center, so how could they, could they, could have they survived? So that uh, uh, lack of, uh, uh, lack of uh, um, uh, transparency about the movement of finances, the movement of money in, this, in the corrupt situation of particularly during the last years of the Yanukovych government created a situation where many Crimeans Russian of course um, origins began to see situation in the following way, uh, most of Ukraine wanted to get rid of that gang of thieves you know, Yanukovych and his people and joined Europe Many Crimeans also wanted to get uh, the, the gang of, of thieves, Yanukovych people, that wanted to return to Mother Russia. So that's, you know, five minutes. Sure, I'm going. Um, lesson number three, which I would be very, very, uh, uh, very brief about. I would just uh, make one thesis. Lesson two, Russia. What to do with Russia? I would say there's a proverb, leaving the camel outside the tent is counterproductive. Well, leaving the bear outside the tent may be, may be prudent, but also counterproductive in, in, in a long sense. Um, politics are, are, are of Russia's place in Europe should be reappraised and analyzed as another, another prehistory to the current crisis. On one hand, 
expectations were that Russia would go through certain transition and would become Bulgaria, but it's too big uh, to, to, be, to, to fit in, in, in anywhere. It's, it's a very big Bulgaria. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean anything, you know, no comparison with Bulgaria at all. I'm just not talking about a big, big unit. This bear, that is not Bulgaria. Um, so, um, well, the Russians, in my opinion, are just purely on psychological level, uh, grew tired of waiting for, for, for Europeans and the Westerners to assign for them a place. And they began to look for their own place. As a result, they grew tired of being good, they, being on probation. Because the message was, if you behave well, maybe, and then maybe was three dots. Maybe for Bulgaria was, you will become Europe. For Russians, that was not, not even that. So if you behave well, then what? You would join World Trade Organization. It took 18 years for, 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 for Russia to negotiate the way into WTO. So there, there, there was lack of clear idea what would be the, would be the place of, of, of Russia in Europe. And since Catherine the Great, since when you know, Catherine the Great actually uh, conquered, conquered Crimea for the first time uh, for Russia, uh, she called Russia a European state. So that's the issue of fundamental significance that we'll need to be addressed. If, of course, Russians decide again that they want to be Europeans, you know, right now I have, they have some doubts. Um, number four, uh, I want to say something about sanctions because uh, on one hand I see I will end after that. Okay. On one hand, I see there's no alternatives to sanctions. On, one, on another hand, I see that sanctions replace policies. Mm. Americans, EU people tell us this is just an instrument. This is not a policy. But the longer sanctions last, the more the situation continues. There's nothing but sanctions on the market. So they do become policies by default. Is it good or bad? I think it's bad. I don't know the alternative, but I think you know there's the chances that the Vladimir Putin and the Russia, the Russian government would be behave better because of sanctions are nil. Also, if, if, if we think that the collapse of Russian economy would do good to Ukraine, we're probably also wrong, because the collapse of Russian economy would automatically cause the collapse of Ukrainian economy, if not before uh, it collapses on its own. So I would stop uh, uh, and leave, uh, leave the floor to, to other participants. Thank you very much, Vlad. Uh, Tomina, over to you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So let me pick up on the theme that Vlad has already highlighted, what to do with, with uh, Russia. Uh, well, first of all, I guess uh, my fellow panelists agree that by suggesting a title, Lessons Learned, uh, it might also uh, kind of imply lessons not learned or lessons we academics seriously studying EU and uh, the Eurasian region would perhaps naively hope that policymakers or observers of this region would uh, take or would sort of take on board and, and consider in considering policy towards uh, in, in this particular crisis. So what I'll do in the next few moments is discuss the kind of specifically short-term EU's response to the Russia-Ukrainian crisis and also reflect on some broader long-term aspects of EU policy specifically towards Russia. And in particular, what I'll do is I'll talk about the effectiveness of the sanctions regime, EU comment on the um, EU's hydrocarbon dependency on Russia. I will uh, discuss also the the wider normative aspects of EU relation with, uh, relations with Russia and generally in the post-communist region, specifically Ukraine. And I will conclude with some, comment, with some comments on EU's vision or lack thereof in elaborating a strategy on Russia post-Putin. So let me start with sanctions, and here I'll play devil's advocate because there is, on the one hand, the liberal Russian Democrat side in me which says that we should embrace sanctions if they lead to the erosion of the authoritarian regime in Russia. On the other hand, there's the social scientist in me which says, well, wait a minute, we have to carefully evaluate the evidence in terms of are these sanctions working? What is the evidence of their short-term uh, attainment of EU's objective in, in pursuing these, these sanctions. So I'll come back to that question, but first I wanted to comment on 
the implications of sanctions for the EU itself. And here I think that they have been problematic, particularly because they possibly from, exacerbated the uh, deep divisions among EU member states, specifically Russia's key trading partners, states heavily de- within the EU heavily dependent on Russia's uh, oil and particularly gas, and those states that see Russia as an ideological ally, whose leaders see Russia as, as an ideological a- ally, such as would be the case with Hungary's Viktor Orban, they uh, were expressing deep reservations about sanctions, and in the process, they ensured that. They they would be significantly watered down and delayed. And in my view, exposing such deep divisions over principle and over what many observers argue this most serious crisis and challenge to the post-Cold War European order could only negatively affect EU's ability to speak from a kind of uh, high moral uh, ground. And particularly also because these divisions play into Russia's strategy of exploiting Europe's uh, internal uh, vulnerabilities and, and divisions. We know that in recent years Russia has even specifically pursued a policy of um, cultivating divisions and support within EU, within among EU member states, and supporting forces, anti-democratic forces, Eurosceptic parties and other forces, and by some accounts even funding those kind of elements w- within the EU. So the sanctions, divisions over sanctions actually played into this strategy of Russia's cultivating these, these vulnerabilities. Now let's step back and reflect on the actual goal attainment of of sanctions we know from generally from international practice that sanctions could ha- could be punitive in nature they could have a deterrent effect or, or deterrent objective rather or they could have a stated or implicit objective implied objective of dislodging a regime that poses a serious threat to regional or global peace and stability. Now, some observers would argue that particularly the deterrent effect of sanctions was in evidence. Think of the Minsk process. Perhaps it has brought Russia to the negotiating table. It might have prevented it from advancing to the Baltics uh, or Moldova or even North Kazakhstan. But others would say, well, these are all wild fantasies. Russia never had those objectives uh, of dismembering Ukraine and going on to those other post-Soviet states. Its objective might have been all along to create a frozen conflict scenario in Ukraine. And this is exactly what we see now with the essentially de facto collapse of the Minsk process and the creation of this frozen conflict scenario. So in that sense, it's very difficult to argue that sanctions have achieved the the intended sort of uh, result. So while the deterrent effect of sanctions uh, to date against Russia is debatable, so too is their potential, and here I would agree with Vlad, to radically alter the nature of the Russian regime in, in the short term. And ultimately that's because as a petrol state, Russia is far less vulnerable to the shock of economic sanctions because as we know, Europe continues to depend on Russia's um, hydrocarbons and continues Russia continues to derive revenues from exports of particularly gas but also oil to European states and despite the the sanctions regime. So in my view and this brings me to the second point about uh, EU strategy a more appropriate strategy for the EU would have been to significantly beef up a policy of diversifying away from dependence on Russia's hydrocarbons and this policy before before waiting for the Ukraine-Russia crisis to happen. And this policy we know has been already underway uh, but it should have been more robust uh, early early on. And we know of course that the reason why um, this policy has not been as sort of robustly implemented is again because of the divisions among EU member states. Poland for instance is one actor that has been uh, advocating this kind of policy of diversification but not everybody within the EU would agree with Poland. 
So what is it that the EU did get right in specifically with relation to Russia? And I, here I want to step back from this immediate Russia-Ukraine crisis and reflect more generally on the long term, the last 25 years of involvement in Russia. And in my view, the normative dimension of Russia, trying to uh, of EU policy in Russia, trying to support kind of shoots of democracy or islands of democracy, however modest in Russia. This is the policy that, in my view, does work. And I've analyzed hundreds of European Union projects conducted in various Russian regions. And, and I'm absolutely convinced that these projects uh, help <laughs> nurture these kind of islands of support for democracy. Yes, they sound, they are very unglamorous in nature because in practice, what do they mean? They might involve supporting cross-border exchanges between small towns uh, somewhere in northwestern Russia on the border with Finland, for instance, or they might involve scholarships to uh, student, for student exchange purposes, or they might involve granting computer equipment to a small town NGO. So, however unglamorous, however, over the long term, these are the kind of projects that help build constituencies for democracy in Russia. And however banal it sounds, this is, I think, what also the e EU got right in Ukraine in the long term, is supporting the democratic choice and the European choice of a large proportion of Ukraine's population. That does doesn't want an alliance with uh, to be part of an alliance of an authoritarian state, which which is uh, Russia. So finally, I wanted to conclude with some comments on the EU vision or lack thereof for Russia post Putin. Now, Russia's involvement in Ukraine is a reminder that the foreign policies of dictatorships can be highly unpredictable. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to go and start supporting crude forms of regime change. But those of us analyzing Russia are aware that the regime is probably going to crumble from its own internal contradictions, and it's just a question of time. Yes, there is a short-term rallying effect around President Putin following the annexation of, of, of Crimea, but recent public opinion surveys reveal growing and deep dissatisfaction with poor public services, corruption, poor governance, weak rule of law. And my own systematic research into mass protests in, across Russia, in all of Russia's regions, suggests that there is a constituency for rapid social mobilization on the streets of not just Moscow, but across Russia, of the kind that we observed in December 2011 and March 20. 2012, when uh, tens of thousands of protesters went to the streets to protest against the, Putin, the authoritarianism of the Putin regime and against electoral fraud. So my research shows that the repression that followed after Putin was re-elected to power in March, uh, to his third ter presidential term in March 2012, this repression simply drove political activism underground, and it drove people to pursue kind of more safe forms of civic fact activism or other forms of civic activism that, much like uh, in the Soviet Union, where people were afraid to kind of articulate political goals, but there was still a constituency for protest. So we, we can anticipate some kind of social or political instability. So the EU should start looking beyond the Putin regime and start formulating a policy on Russia post-Putin. And this should involve some hard thinking about where perhaps more democratic Russia might fit into the European order. So it's all the more imperative in, in this context for the EU to consider first and foremost articulating a clear message about the future of Russia in the EU enlargement process. And here I would like to very much endorse what Vlad said about this kind of ambiguity and uncertainty Certainty about where Russia fits in this in the European order, in the even under this hypothetical scenario that one day it will become a consolidated um, democracy. Now we know, we all of us know that the simple reason for Russia's marginal prospects of becoming an EU member state is that it's simply too geographically and economically big for the EU to swallow and absorb, absorb or because the EU simply, simply doesn't want to see China on its borders. But in that case, the EU should 
articulate this message very clearly and in a very transparent way. Alternatively, if the door is open for a perhaps hypothetically democratic Russia in the distant future into the EU, then the EU should articulate a clear set of conditions a country the size of Russia would have to fulfill to, to qualify uh, for entry into the EU. And the EU, of course, faces many of the same issues with regard to Ukraine, a territorially large, populous country, which would require massive infusion of structural and all kinds of other EU funds. So it is all the more imperative and, and the EU, for the EU to work even harder to articulate and justify more clearly why its position on Russia would be different to avoid a charge of double standards. Okay, thank you very much. Great, on to you. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to be back at the LSE. Um, maybe uh, before switching really attention now to internal dynamics within Ukraine, maybe just to set the scene briefly in a sentence um, where we are with regard to this conflict. Um, uh, there are about 4,000 dead people by now. Um, that's the estimate. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. Um, several million people have been disenfranchised, didn't vote in the um, Ukrainian national elections on the 26th of October, and then some uh, uh, participated in, in a uh, internationally and by Ukraine not recognized uh, local election last Sunday. Um, the map has been redrawn off, off uh, Ukraine. Crimea seems to be, for the moment, at least gone. There's a de facto fragmentation of the Ukrainian state, which has been through the sequence of elections and parts of, of uh, Donbass and Luhansk not participating in the parliamentary elections, plus the poll last Sunday, has been cemented. Um, there has been a surprising amount of Cold War rhetoric since the, way, since the, the Euromaidan um, protest started about a, uh, about a year ago. The West has clearly scrambled for, um, kind of scrambled to find some sort of response. Uh, I, mean, I talked about the ambiguous effect of sanctions, if they have any effect, uh, effect at all. And perhaps we also see a somewhat different political scene emerging, a political landscape that is a bit different emerging in Ukraine. So that's quite dramatic for within one year. I think nobody could have predicted this um, series of events. And that also means if we didn't expect any of this, um, we certainly should be able to learn quite a few lessons from this. Um, I think as a paradox, because now clearly at the moment the Ukrainian state looks rather weak, um, and we might argue which bits still belong to the Ukrainian state de facto in the euro. Um, but the paradox is that a year ago Ukrainians, the Ukrainian state wasn't all that weak. Um, and I would argue it had come a long way to, to building the state within uh, the boundaries, as, as Vlad was talking about it, um, that had never been part of an independent state um, before. So since 91, um, I think the Ukrainian state had come a long way in integrating uh, very different regions, and they vary on a, on a number of, of different um, dimensions, not just the ethnic, linguistic ones, also political orientations, economic um, uh, factors, and, and so on. So what that means is that none of what we've seen since last um, October, November was inevitable in any way. And I think we're probably slightly in danger of, of now looking back or looking over the very long delay to imply that there was a certain necessity to these events unfolding. And we can find these um, factors and reasons uh, why Russia had an interest in Crimea. It always had it for centuries. But that in itself explains, I think, nothing at all about why it acted, why Russia took Crimea when it did. Um, so I think um, we need to be very careful in now finding the causes and effects um, um, over this um, sort of last quite, quite dramatic um, year. Um, I, I think it was a, there was a political trigger, and it's actually an interesting one for mass protests. The, the not signing the EU associ association agreement is, is in many ways a rather bizarre starting point to mass mobilization. Um, so we're a foreign policy um, idea, uh, but clearly it channeled, um, I mean, seriously, actually, it's not a, <laughs> but it channeled a lot of um, domestic aspirations, and that's clearly um, why, why this became um, uh, fed into these protests. So there was a political trigger, a political context. So the whole um, chain of events is, is really a, a political <coughs> issue and politically created um, issue. And then it took on a dynamic of its own that, as I say, we couldn't have really foreseen. But it was not at the moment, neither the demonstrations, nor the annexation of Crimea, nor the conflict um, that is still going on in Donetsk and Luhansk, came at a moment when 
the southeast, uh, in particular, if we go back a year, um, the, the protests did not, in the ouster of Yanukovych, um, the annexation of Crimea, did not come at a time when, when the southeast was not politically represented um, at the center of Kiev. I mean, that became part of, of the conflict as it evolved, but initially that wasn't the case. Um, uh, there was no separatist mobilization to speak of in Donetsk, Luhansk, or Crimea, for that matter. There was a lot of continuity since the early 90s when there was actually separatist mobilization in, in Crimea. It was also not a moment when uh, Russian language rights or any other um, sort of more specifically regional, regionally defined rights were under threat. On the contrary, again, Russian language actually under Yanukovych had a um, regional status in um, the, the southeast. Um, so, and again, also even Russian-Ukrainian uh, relations were not, I would argue, at a point of, of immense tension. They've gone on clearly through various cycles. But so there's a lot, I think, we need to understand around this sort of political situation and what unraveled and unraveled so quickly then. Um, so what I'm really talking about is um, to slightly bend mixed rules about the, the one lesson. I will give you one lesson, but I think it's also important to, to uh, address not the lessons we should avoid um, learning or not to learn the wrong lessons. <laughs> and this is, I think, about Ukraine's state weakness before um, uh, October, November 2013. And related to that is also another lesson that we should also be careful about, this east-west split that had haunted um, Ukraine ever since its independence, if not for longer, uh, the people often talked up a, a, a real or a de facto east-west split um, in Ukraine. And at the moment, it has clearly gone furthest towards such a split. But even now, and even more so um, in the past or since 91, if we look closely, there are multiple identities all coexisting in uh, the southeast of Ukraine and probably nowhere more so than in, in Donetsk and, and Kohansk. Um, and while we see certain political identities more at the moment than others, I think even now we would be wrong to um, assume that the whole region or maybe the territory of those electoral districts that didn't vote in the national um, parliamentary elections um, all stand united for one thing, for relations with better, closer relations with Russia or even um, uh, being part of the Russian Federation. I think the honest answer is we just don't know. There is no good information right now on what people think, which bits of their identities, ethnic, uh, linguistic, political, economic, you, uh, you name it, um, in maybe in foreign policy terms as well, which bits have been activated in, in, in what way and how they would align now. Um, I think the evidence we have suggests to me that they are still pretty divided and perhaps identities have become more divided in eastern regions. So if we look at opinion polls, and if, again we have to take them with some caution in the middle of a, of a, of a crisis and conflict, um, they still suggest majority support for the Ukrainian state in its current or at least the borders that were not disputed a, a few months ago. Um, and if we look closely at the election results, the parliamentary elections, we also see, uh, yes, there's still um, a, a clear east-west divide in terms of the parties that um, uh, gain the majority vote on the party list. But if we look more closely, um, it's actually quite interesting that um, even in regions like Donetsk, Luhansk, Kharkiv, Odessa, if we add up all the parties which are roughly associated with remnants of the former um, party of regions and roughly those uh, standing for something pro-European, which I'm not entirely sure what that means, but uh, if we keep it like that for the moment, they're often actually evenly, fairly evenly split. And having a, a party from Lviv being someone Pomich being elected with five to seven or eight percent in some of the southeastern regions, that also sends a signal. So, if anything, um, there are still different um, identities in those regions, um, very important today. Perhaps the main change is that they're more polarized now, or these regions have become more divided, but not um, really, I think, shifting in one way or another. And so far, we are. We're mostly seeing separate mobilization. That's a small group of very well organized and obviously also well equipped um, individuals in a standoff with Kiev and Moscow rather than I think whole regions or a large part of the population involved in this. So now my main lesson um, is really to do with um, decentralization and federalization of the country. And uh, I see quite a few familiar faces in the audience, so um, forgive me, I've been talking about this for, for several years, but um, most of the time I've been, I've been criticized for this, and I might be now as well. Um, I think we, the regional diversity that Ukraine has to address within its, its uh, boundaries um, almost writes a decentralized or federalized structure into its makeup. 
Um, and while federalism is, for obvious reasons, uh, a very tainted um, term and concept, in particular in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, because the socialist era federations collapsed for the most part, uh, and also because Russia now thinks it's a good idea to have a federal Ukraine, both these things don't mean it's a bad idea in principle. So to kind of step back a bit and, and look at what uh, the Ukrainian state was and is and could be again, um, I would argue that what has so far been a more informal balancing mechanism between different regional um, uh, interests, uh, interests that were usually fairly evenly uh, represented in the political system overall and took turns in the center in Kiev in terms of running affairs, um, that has broken down, possibly partly because an informal mechanism can come under pressure more easily. So I think the key issue is now to think of um, a new balance between uh, a degree of informal balancing and a degree of more formal balancing through uh, a more, let's avoid the term federal then if it's too tainted, but a seriously decentralized structure, which in my view really has to involve a regionally elected tier of politicians. Uh, a quick argument again that against that could be that would also entrench uh, for, for example, oligarchic regional interests, but they are entrenched already anyway, so we might as well start thinking about uh, trying something new with those um, interests that would perhaps induce an element of accountability. And as a result, I think could ironically strengthen Ukraine, would have perhaps, but it's obviously a speculation, could have strengthened Ukraine uh, before this whole conflict, arguably could have strengthened it, sim signals um, that there is a commitment to go in that direction, nothing more was required, could have, I think, taken some of the wind out of Russia's sails, and I think going forward could make Ukraine as a state um, stronger than it is now. I'm going to leave it here. Uh, Karen, over to you. Great, thanks. Um, uh, so, uh, thanks to, uh, to Miller for organizing uh, the roundtable and to uh, Ideas and IR, uh, the IR department for. Uh, sponsoring this. Um, when Tamila asked me uh, to uh, speak, she wanted me to speak from the EU perspective. So I am going to give um, a, a sort of a brief background, I think, on what the EU thought it was trying to do in Ukraine uh, and vis-a-vis uh, -vis the eastern neighborhood before uh, 2013, and then a little bit about what it has tried to do uh, since. Um, she pressed me on lessons learned, but I struggled to think of who would learn the lessons. Um, <laughs> And what lessons there are, you know, whether, I mean, this is actually a quite serious social scientific issue of whether lessons are learned in policymaking processes at all. Uh, but right now, it, in particular, is not a very good time for anyone in the EU to be learning lessons because there are many other things uh, to be, um, uh, that they are preoccupied with and uh, the external action service, which might be the one body in which uh, lessons could be learned, uh, has been in a state of disarray ever since it was uh, founded. Uh, so let, I'm not actually going to offer for any. So you got four. You've got. You've already had your, your quota of uh, lessons. I'm not offering. Not, not, not any anymore. Um, uh, frequently after uh, November 2013, um, I, th I heard the complaint. Well, this was blaming the EU, which I think was quite uh, quite astonishing. But that the EU had had a technocratic approach um, uh, towards Ukraine because there were Commission uh, employees uh, negotiating a trade agreement who were ignorant of the wider geopolitical uh, circumstances. This, I think, is catastrophically wrong. The, the uh, association agreement that was being negotiated with Ukraine was part of a larger vision, which was to support Ukrainian independence uh, and, in general, to try to create a ring of well-governed, uh, friendly, democratic, and prosperous states around it. In other words, a geopolitical vision. And there was certainly understanding uh, that Russia was a competitor in the region uh, might not have been a full-blown understanding of it, and there might have been eyes closed about the implications of that, but there was certainly awareness of this, which is why they were willing to negotiate and conclude an agreement with Ukraine, despite the fact that Ukraine did not meet many of the EU's conditions. Um, in other words, they were willing to suspend the strict application of conditionality because they wanted uh, to support uh, Ukraine, precisely Ukraine's independence vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, in particular, uh, Russia. Now, 
the vision, this vision that the EU had for its eastern and arguably also southern uh, neighborhood about a ring of well-governed, being surrounded by a ring of friendly uh, states was constrained both internally and and externally. And internally, it was constrained by the generosity of the member states. Uh, We are in an era of austerity. There just isn't that much aid to go around, and certainly nobody wants immigrants, right? Uh, so therefore, any kind of visa facilitation was very uh, sensitive, well, continues uh, to be a very uh, sensitive issue. Nonetheless, a lot of aid was still on offer, and then these very uh, quite um, uh, generous association agreements, which would include deep and comprehensive free trade agreements, were on uh, the table. Now, uh, externally, the vision was constrained by the lack of progress in neighboring countries. Right? So you have a vision. Right? Everybody should be nice and friendly and democratic and uh, prosperous and all the rest of it, and we'll help you around that way. What if they don't want to or they can't or whatever? There the dilemma is posed for the European Union. What do you do? Do you ignore the fact that you have certain kinds of conditions and offer the aid and agreements anyway? In other words, that other things become priorities, or do you make priorities being things like uh, progress towards uh, democracy uh, and human rights and so on? And this is a perennial debate in EU foreign policy. It is not just vis-a-vis Ukraine. It is vis-a-vis practically every uh, country um, on earth at uh, particular uh, times. And vis-a-vis Ukraine, there were voices in uh, the EU that were arguing uh, that it was too soon to give Ukraine so many goodies, so many uh, benefits. Um, then there were those who were arguing that, um, no, it was the, 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 the overall priority had to be to support uh, Ukraine. In the end, it boiled down to a single condition about the release of Timoshenko because that's the way the compromise uh, went uh, within uh, the EU uh, member states. Uh, And then it all fell to pieces in November 2013 Uh, anyway. Um, Vis-a-vis Russia, I actually would argue that the policy has been towards inclusion. Uh, Russia was didn't want to participate in the Eastern Partnership. It was offered four common spaces instead. It was given an agreement with NATO. It was included in the Council of Europe. It was included in the G8 and the G20. There was a lot of closing of eyes towards uh, what was going on in Russia, specifically because they wanted to pursue inclusion rather than uh, exclusion. Then, both of those strategies, the strategy of hoping that Ukraine and all the rest of them would continue on this uh, path, and then the hope of including Russia would somehow convince Russia uh, to play, uh, play along with the whole game, fell to pieces in November 2013, and the EU was faced with the crisis. That is, people dying on the streets. Now, EU crisis decision-making, is a, so for some reason, lots of academics like to study it, even though there isn't a lot to study, because the EU as 28 doesn't do crisis decision-making. I mean, it can't. It's 28 states plus other uh, institutional actors. You cannot expect the EU to move quickly and decisively in a crisis. It is it, not possible. States, some states can't even move quickly and decisively uh, in, a, in a crisis, and they're just that's just a single uh, state. Now, uh, there was also a lot of criticism from the United States, which I thought was sniping from the sidelines, given that the U.S. is on the other side of the Atlantic. It trades less. It's not uh, dependent on those hydrocarbons. So very extremely unhelpful uh, criticism uh, by the U.S. But the U.S. imposed sanctions, which therefore put the EU also in a tight spot. And for many months, there was complaints about how uh, the EU wasn't uh, imposing sanctions. Now, its its response to the invasion of Crimea was very muted. Again, it was the kind of, we need inclusion, engagement, dialogue, rather than the exclusion um, uh, kind of uh, policy. So it was focused on some smart sanctions, partly because there was intense pressure uh, from the United States, but are quite muted and therefore heavily criticized within uh, Europe, a reaction to the takeover of, uh, to the uh, invasion and takeover of Crimea, we want to term it like that. Now, as uh, Russian involvement, uh, evidence of Russian involvement grew in eastern Ukraine, and then, of course, after the downing of MH17, those, that position hardened. It, but it took that for the position uh, to harden. 
Now, the consensus is still shaky uh, uh, within uh, the EU, and perhaps surprisingly for many um, uh, who have studied the process of enlargement, who predicted that the Central and East European countries coming into the EU would harden the EU's position on Russia. Actually, some of the wobbliest countries have been uh, in uh, Central uh, and Eastern uh, Europe. And now it will be a test of whether the EU can hold a hard line. Traditionally, it fails <laughs> that test. Uh, it holds the hard line for a little bit and then eventually decides, well, even though we set these conditions, uh, things have changed and so therefore we're going to just drop uh, the sanctions. Um, so we'll just see. I mean, it remains to be seen. I would predict that the hard line will not stay around uh, for very long, though perhaps at the very least they will stop talking about Russia as a strategic partner with which it shares uh, common uh, values. Fundamentally, policy towards Ukraine hasn't changed. In other words, what's been on offer uh, to Ukraine is basically what was on offer there, plus, right? So more aid, uh, but still a deep and comprehensive free trade uh, agreement. Um, uh, there's a sort of very symbolic uh, CSDP mission to help uh, boost uh, the security sector. But essentially, the, the policy, the overall policy and the aims on Ukraine remain the same. Those haven't changed which is contrary to the change that we saw after the Arab Spring, in which the EU did go away and try to revise uh, its European neighborhood policy, primarily to try to boost uh, conditionality. Uh, now, on enlargement, just because this has been <laughs> brought up uh, before, um, I think uh, the EU should not uh, offer enlargement above all to Russia, but especially not to Ukraine. I think it is too early. It is, um, we can't even you know, talk about uh, enlarging right now for the next five years, according to the Commission uh, President, to the Western uh, Balkans, who have been in the queue uh, for very uh, long. And if we do want an EU that works, uh, then perhaps enlarging, in fact, isn't uh, a very uh, good idea. But I think that the, the, res the resort to... Um, to thinking about using the promise of EU membership as a carrot is desperation because EU membership is then considered to be the panacea. You offer the carrot and everything is going to be all right afterwards. But actually, it isn't working out that way. It isn't working out that way in the Western Balkans. It isn't working out that way in Turkey. And it would not work out that way uh, further east. It is simply not a legitimate, incredible kind of policy instrument to be able to offer at this point. That's towards Ukraine. Don't even get me started uh, on, uh, on, <laughs> Rush, on Russia, uh, which would, I think, be, uh, you know, we, I don't even think that this is in, you know, in the rest of my lifetime. Uh, kind of a policy uh, option, um, but which means, therefore, that the EU uh, and other actors need to have other ways of trying to encourage change, boost um, uh, uh, democratic processes, whether those are in a federal structure or whatever, uh, and boost democratic processes in Russia without offering what would essentially be um, a kind of a fairy tale instrument of uh, EU enlargement. Thanks. Thanks for that.